listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's sermon in the series, Identity, a study on the book of Ephesians. Father, we're just here again this morning to exalt your Son, who is greater and stronger, who is Lord, who is risen from the dead. And we say and we sang that He is our everything, He is our all in all, um, that all we have is in Him and what He has done. And Lord, we come to your word this morning and as I, I ask, as I did in the first couple services, Lord, that you would just move by your spirit, that it would be your words and not mine. Just add to or take away from anything I may say that, that Jesus may be exalted. Father, do not exalt a church. Do not exalt a person. Do not exalt a people. Exalt your son, our savior, who sits at your right hand interceding for us. Exalt him through your word. May the body be built and equipped for every good work so that Christ is exalted I am a broken and empty nothing of a man, and I can do nothing apart from you. And so I just beg of you that your spirit would fall on me in a fresh and and a powerful way so that Christ is exalted. For him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. All right. If I was to ask you, what is the greatest need... Of CBC, what would you say? Maybe some of you would say, parking. I parked on Duren. <laughs> right? Maybe you'd say, space. Typically, I don't have a seat or I have to sit in the windowsill. Maybe you walked up the stairs upstairs and you said, I think we need some ceiling tiles. I think I need some ceiling tiles. Right? Need nurseries, or or maybe you would be more spiritual, and you'd say, "Well, we need to be better evangelists, and we need better marriages, and we need to know our Bible, or we need to be involved socially more." Maybe that's where you would respond, or maybe we need to send more missionaries, or we need to grow. Maybe you're thinking we need a new pastor, whatever, right? And maybe some of those are true, and there are some needs there. If you're a lady, you're like, "Have you seen the bathrooms? We need new bathrooms." And maybe those are legitimate needs, but that is not our greatest. Need. In fact, those things don't even pale into comparison with our greatest need. Not even close. What is our greatest need as a church? And what is yours by way of application individually? What is your greatest need? That's what we're going to look at and talk about today as we continue in our study in the book of Ephesians. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 1. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23 today um, as we continue to work through this little epistle. If you're not familiar with the Bible... You know, there's one in the seat in front of you somewhere. You can follow on the screen and just get up, follow along. Um, the book of Ephesians is one of the New Testament letters or epistles, as it's called. And it's written to a group of people that live in Ephesus by a man named Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus. He was a, a rebel and he was killing Christians. And God kind of got his got a hold of his life, knocked him off his donkey 
transformed his life. And he becomes now a follower of Jesus and an apostle and a messenger of Jesus. And he's writing from prison. He's in jail in Rome. And he's writing to this church. And last couple of weeks, we've kind of seen that he's been teaching them who they are in Christ, what their identity is. Right. And we saw that really your identity is not how you describe yourself. I'm a Yankee. I'm a Southerner. I'm a Braves fan. I'm a Phillies fan. I'm tall. I'm short. I'm whatever. It's are you in Christ or you're in Adam? Those are the only options. In Christ, having your sins forgiven because you put your faith in him and he took your place on a cross. You're in Christ and alive spiritually or you're in Adam and you may be physically alive, but you're spiritually dead, separated from God. Those are the two options. And, and really those determine everything else. And we saw the implications. Paul in verses 3 through 15 goes on this gloriously Holy Spirit inspired run on sentence. Where he just kind of goes off and off and off. This is what it means to be in Christ. You are blessed and you are chosen and you're forgiven and you have value and you've been made wise. And all these things. I just kicked somebody's That's my bottle. All right. You have all these things and he's, this is who you are now in Christ. And he finally gets to the end and he takes a breath and he puts a period. But then what he does, he takes a big gasp and he goes on another long Holy Spirit inspired run on sentence. And the first one was a praise. The second one is now a prayer. He's going to be praying for this church. This is what I'm praying for you guys. This is what I want. And it's in that prayer, in the content of that prayer, that we will see what is the greatest need of that church? What is the greatest need of our church? And so let's read the text. Um, And look. There is a lot of books out there on churches, how to do church, this kind of church, this kind of church, be this church, be this church, all these things. And there's some value to some of these. I'm not saying there's not. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, what is it that the church needs? It needs exactly what we're going to see today. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to go back to what the apostle taught us through the scriptures. So let's read together. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he starts off and says this, for this reason, for what reason? You got to ask the question because of what he's just said last week, what he's been talking about. You've been chosen. You've been blessed. You've been all these things because of that, right? Because of that, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. He does two things. He says, I give thanks. I don't cease to give thanks for you. And I remember you in my prayers. Two things. I am thankful for you guys and I am praying for y'all. And and those two things are significant. And then the next thing, the next verse is the content of his prayer. That first word of 17 is that. It introduces the content of what he's praying. But before we get to that content, I want to kind of just for real quick, kind of take a side side step for a minute and just talk about this little phrase because it's significant here. This is kind of a sermon within a sermon, right? You don't get charged for this one. This one's free, right? But there's kind of two big ideas here. He says, I haven't ceased giving thanks for you. What is he giving thanks for? That he heard 
Circle that word. He heard of their faith. Remember, he's in jail. He's hundreds of miles away. There's no internet. There's no, you know, email. There's no anything. So he, but he's hearing, he's saying, look, y'all, I am hearing things about y'all. I'm in jail in Rome. Y'all are across the water and I'm hearing great things about your church. I'm hearing what's going on in Ephesus and I am pumped. And let me just kind of make two big observations about that. And these are significant. Okay, so don't miss this. Here's the first one. There should be no competitiveness or envy inside or between local churches. Ever. Ever, ever. And are churches bad at it? You bet they're bad at it. They're the worst. And we are not above it. Because there is something in churches that they have a smoke machine. We're going to have two smoke machines. They have two smoke machines. We're going to get a lightning machine. All right. And there's this sense of competitiveness that, oh my goodness, they're doing this. We want to do that. Is that the apostle's heart? What does he say? I am just grateful for y'all. I am grateful that the kingdom is moving forward. He's not saying, man, y'all are smoking the Philippians. And woo, y'all are kicking the tails of them Thessalonians. They stink. They're a bunch of knuckleheads. And those Corinthians, man, we won't even talk about them. But y'all, you're winning. You're winning the church game. But that's how it is in the church, isn't it? There's envy. There's jealousy. They do this. Oh my goodness, they're growing. What's wrong with that? We're not growing. And so we have to do what they're doing because we want to grow too. And there's this, you know, it's like the church softball league except for services. And there's a competitiveness. And it has no place within the local church. It is not the heart of Paul. It is not the heart of Jesus. He is rejoicing that the kingdom is moving forward. That should be our rejoicing. You hear about this church over here? And they're doing it and it's doing well. And someone's marriage got restored. Someone gets saved. They've added a hundred people. You should rejoice with them because the kingdom's going forward. I don't care if they use robes or sprinkle or they don't have drums. One day they'll wake up and they'll get some drums. We know it doesn't matter. The heart is for the kingdom to move forward. I am so grateful for some of my friends in this town who are pastors of other churches. My buddy, Nick Batsik, who's a, who's a pastor out at New Covenant Prez out in Richmond Hill, who prays for us, who, who on Sunday mornings in their church service will actually mention our church by name, who kneel down the street, right down the street here, Kirk of the Isles, Prez, Jesus does the same. And these are men who pray for us, and on Sunday mornings, every morning when I'm praying for us, I am praying for these men and others in this town who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what the heart of the local church should be. There should be no, we're better than them because we do fill in the blank. You want to see God's hand come off a church? Start competing with other churches because it is arrogance and proud and God is opposed to the proud. So you want to see a church start going the wrong way? Start, start competing with the other churches in town, try to be better. I'm so proud of our, of our high school team and, and, and William and putting together the one place conference where all these, I mean, we're partnering with other churches, with Bull Street downtown, and we're partnering with IPC and their guys, and we're putting together trying to reach the kids in these high schools for Jesus Christ. And all these youth pastors are coming together to put on this conference. And it's awesome. Should we, what should be taking place within the body of Christ? All right? And so there's no place for competitiveness. Second observation is this. It's this, this little commendation by Paul. It shows me what a church's reputation should be. What does he say? Y'all got some great preaching. Y'all reformed. Y'all got great music. You're relevant. You're cutting edge. You got three smoke machines. 
you've got great orthodoxy. Is that what he says? He says, for this reason, because I have heard of what? Two things, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. What should the reputation of the local church be? That their number one faith is in the Lord Jesus. And this is not just the initial faith that happens at conversion. It's the ongoing relationship. Your church should be a church that makes much of Jesus Christ. His name is exalted. That is the reputation we want as this church, y'all. We do not want to be known as the hip church, the young church, the cool church. Look, if, if we are the cool church, man, and cool has changed since I've been in high school. I can tell you right now. And if you're coming here because you think this is cool, this is trendy, please don't. Because what's going to happen when they get the lightning machine and they get the thunder machine and they're cooler? You're going to just bounce to the cool hip. You come here because you want to know Christ. Do you want to exalt Christ? What should the reputation of us as a church be out in the community? That we love Christ, that we sing about Christ, that we talk of Christ, that we worship Christ, that we exalt Christ, that we want to know Christ. That should be the reputation of the church and nothing else. He says, I hear across the water about y'all and your faith is in Jesus Christ. And doesn't that make sense that we, since we are in Christ, that we should be made much of Christ? You are not in CBC. You are not in Bill Fowler. You are not in BSF. You are not in the Navigators. You're not in Young Life, Campus Crusade. You are in Christ. And so the church's job is to make much of him. That's the job of the church. That should be the reputation come here because you want to know Christ. He says, you know Christ. Your, your, your faith in Christ is known. And also what? Your love towards, circle the word, big word, all the saints. You love the Philippians. You love the Corinthians. You love the Galatians. You love the Laodiceans. You love the Philadelphians. You love the Smyrnians. You love the Thessalonians. You love them all. You love the Jews, you love the Gentiles, you love the Romans, you love the guy with tattoos, you love the guy that doesn't have tattoos, you love the guy with long hair, you love the guy with short hair, you love the guy that likes the braids, which is really hard, and you love the guy that does this and that, who hurts you and has different and dunks and doesn't have drums, and you love them all, all the saints, right? The person who criticizes you, the person that's scary, the person that smells like cigarettes, you love them all. That is the reputation of that church. The hard people to love. And let's be honest. The church is filled of hard people to love. All right, let's just be honest with it. There's people that annoy you. And there's people who have hurt your feelings. And there's people that disagree with things on you. It's easy to love the guy that looks like you and that acts like you. That's easy. It's hard to love that guy over there who's different than me. But that's the one. He, they, you love them all. And it's interesting. He says that he has heard of their love. How do you hear about love? I mean, how do you really hear about love? Not, oh, we like going to church. That's not what he's talking about. Oh, we, we have warm fuzzies for one another. He can't be talking about that. The only way you can hear about love is if love is doing something. If there's love is in action. That's how you hear about love. And so what he's saying is, I've heard that y'all love each other. How do I know? Because y'all are doing stuff. You're serving one another. You're giving your life away. You're loving each other. All right? That, that's the idea. Look, that's the reputation we want as a church. I came to CBC. I didn't have a seat. Someone sat in a windowsill so I could sit down. Who does that? Somebody parked moderately far away so that I could park a little bit closer than them. 
someone, when they saw me in the corner and I was kind of alone during that greeting time, they came over and they said hi and they remembered my name at the end of the service. They remembered my name. I wasn't just a person. They, they walked my kid up these stairs into this maze of a building and they took him out of their own time. And they loved my kid in that nursery. They, they, they loved on him. They prayed with me when I was crying during the worship. They saw that there was something wrong and they came over. They, they made meals for me when, in our small group when, when my husband lost his job and, and, I, and I was sick or I had a baby. See, that's love. The, the Greek word agape is, is not a, a fuzzy, warm feeling. It's, it's self-sacrificing, self-giving, looking out for the best of the other person. That's the idea. You're looking out for others. Look, do you come for you or do you come for others? That's, a, that's an important question for you to ask. And let me challenge some of you, not those of you who are visiting or been here a month and you're kind of checking us out. Those of you who've been here six months, nine months, 12 months... Why are you coming? And you're still not plugged in. You're still kind of in. You kind of get halfway through the first song and you're out before we pray. The purpose of the New Testament church is not just merely to come hear some teaching. If that was the case, I can email you an MP3. We could just, we could, you know, have no power bill. I'll just eat, I'll just preach a sermon to the TV and you guys, I'll just send it to you. The purpose is life-giving, self-giving relationships where you're living in community with a bunch of messy people that are just as messed up as you are. And you're loving them anyway. And you're serving them and you're giving them. Maybe it's just hanging in a bulletin. Maybe it's watching their kids. Maybe it's praying for them. But it's giving of yourself away. That is the picture of the church. Not come in and get something and leave. That is Publix. This is not Publix. This is a place where you give yourself away. Where you love one another. And it's very interesting is this very church that he is complimenting for their love right here. 30 years later, when the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation... He talks about them. And what God says about them there is you love your orthodoxy and you hate sin and you love your theology. But I'm about to shut the doors of the church. And you know why? Because you don't love anybody anymore. You say, but we love the Trinity. I got four verses on the Trinity memorized. And I love the orthodoxy and I've memorized Ephesians and I know all these things. We can defend the faith and I hate sin. Isn't that what we do? Yeah, but you don't love anybody. So I'm going to shut you down. That's what Jesus says. How important is love? Look, we're glad everyone is here, but the purpose of the church is for you to give away your life. And if you're not giving away your life, then what are you doing? Right? Look, there's a lot of talk about our church in town. I hear it because I, I study out there incognito. No one ever knows that I'm the pastor because I have my hoodie on and I'm hiding in the corner. And they're talking about us and they think that I'm like some teenager. Right? So they're talking about us and, we, and there's a lot of junk that is said. And that's fine. Let's give them something to talk about that we make much of Christ and that we love one another and nothing else nothing else let that be what they say because then we will be where God wants us to be okay that's your sermon within a sermon that one's free let's look at the prayer now so what does he say what does he pray he says I don't cease to give thanks for you remembering you my prayers that first word then in verse 17 that it's this little Greek word introduces it. It's called it's a hinna. That 
What am I praying? The rest of this chapter is what he's praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart and hearts enlightened. Now, that's a big old mouthful, several different phrases. But here's kind of how I summarize that phrase, and we'll kind of go back and unpack it. But what he's praying is this, is that they would deeply know and comprehend Jesus. They deeply, intimately know and comprehend Christ. That's, that's kind of the big picture of what he's saying here. And he gives us four little phrases to kind of, that kind of build me to that conclusion. Right? Let's look at them one by one. I do not cease to give thanks. Remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He's praying that the Father, God the Father, the first person in the Trinity, number one, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Now, if you have the NIV, I, I gave you some props last week. Today, I'm going to get you back. Right? Because what the NIV does, some of you have it has a big S there, right? It says the spirit of wisdom. And it makes an interpretive decision and says that he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. It's the only translation that goes that way. And it really, I don't think, makes any sense for multiple reasons. Number one, because the word the spirit is not in the original Greek. It's not, it's, it, the definite article is not there. Number two, he has just told them that they've been sealed with the spirit. So why is he praying now that they would have the spirit of wisdom? It doesn't make any sense. And so the other translations, the ESV, New American Standard, King James, these, these have a better sense of the text where he's saying, not that you have the spirit of wisdom, but that you have spiritual wisdom, that you have an attitude or a heart of wisdom, right? That, there, that God would give you this wisdom, this spiritual wisdom that may be sourced in the spirit, but that it, there's a spiritual understanding and wisdom that he's opened your eyes to. Secondly, that you would have Wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of him. That you'd have an understanding of him, of who God is. The most important thing you think about is what you think about God. Because it determines your entire existence. That's what Tozer said. So if you have a little God who shows up only at prayer meeting on Wednesday night and Sunday morning, then when you have a hard time on Friday afternoon, that's going to make sense. But if you have a big God who is sovereign and omnipotent, omniscient, and incredibly attentive to your life... He, and everything that happens, he has allowed, it's going to walk you through your life and you're going to see life a lot differently. And what he's praying is, look, I pray that you would have some spiritual wisdom from God the Father. I pray that you would know who he is, how big God is, that you would know the character and the nature of God. Next, he says this, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Now here for those three of you that actually like grammar, this is for you. I'm throwing this out there for you. The rest of you can just kind of pause it. But this is what grammarians will call a perfect passive participle. Okay? That's a mouthful. I, I paid $40,000 in seminary to learn that phrase. Right? But what it means is this. The perfect tense in the Greek is a past tense that has present results. So it's something that took place in the past, but now it's continuing. The passive voice is when you don't do the action, the action is done upon you. And so what he has said here is that you have the eyes of your heart have been enlightened past tense. But guess what? They're still enlightened. You didn't enlighten them. Who did? God the Father enlightened them when he opened your eyes to the gospel. So he's, what he said here is, look, you've had your eyes open. All right. And because your eyes are open, I want you to have spiritual wisdom. I want you to have a revelation of the knowledge of him. I want you to have the final phrase, a knowledge of. Of him, not a knowledge about him, not facts. I got four verses on the Trinity, blah, blah, blah. I want you to know him intimately, personally. I want this deep experiential understanding of who God is. It's the difference between, you know, the guy that just graduates med school 
and the veteran surgeon. Who do you want doing surgery? You want the guy here? I've seen this done in class. I got the book right here. Cut the one in the middle, right? That's what I do. Who do you want operating on you? The guy that's done this a thousand times or this guy? Who do you want leading you into battle? The guy who's been to Afghanistan six times or the 17-year-old that says, I did this on Call of Duty. I'm good. I got it. Which one do you want? The one who has experiential knowledge. That's the one who I want. And that's what he's praying. That they would deeply know and comprehend Christ in an intimate, deep, personal way. What is the greatest need, CBC, of this church? It's not for you to get married. It's not for new ceiling tiles. It's not for new ladies' room. It's not for parking less than a mile away. It is for you to deeply, intimately know Jesus Christ better than you did yesterday. When you were a lost person, your greatest need was to have your sins forgiven and to know Christ. Now that you are a believer, your greatest need is to know him in a deeper and intimate way. Now. That's it. In the same way that 17 years ago, when I first met my beautiful wife, right? And she thought I was an Italian, Yankee, Roman Catholic who looked like Tom Cruise. <laughs> they call me Maverick for short. Right? She was wrong. I wasn't Italian and I wasn't Catholic. But I did look like Tom Cruise. But on that day... I began to know her, right? I knew her. But for the past 15 year, almost years of marriage, 17 years of, of knowing her, my, my knowledge of her has grown. I have been more intimate with her. I know her on a deeper level than I did six years ago. And 20 years from now, if God so tarries, I will know her even more than I know now. And that is the idea here, that you would deeply know even more today than yesterday and comprehend who Christ is. And the problem in the church, and Tozer nails it on the head when he says this, we have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic, which insists that if we have found Christ, we need no more seek him. Think about that. He, he nails it on the head. That just because you became a Christian, now you're done pursuing Jesus because you're going to heaven. How silly. What a, a ridiculous logic. I got married. See you in 30 years, honey. Right? How silly. How silly. And that's what he says is going on in the church, in America. But you need to understand that the God of the universe has been pursuing you and is still pursuing you. And he is constantly inviting you into his presence. And you see it throughout the New Testament. You see it in John when, when he's a, the resurrected Savior sitting on the beach and he tells the disciples, come have breakfast with me. I got some fish and some Eggo waffles. That's the NIV. I said, no. Come have breakfast with me. You see James, his half-brother, when he writes, draw near to God and what? He'll draw near to you. You see John the Apostle in the book of Revelation when he has a picture of Jesus actually outside the church knocking on the door of the church saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in with him. I will dine with him and he with me. And we've made that an evangelistic verse. Come to Jesus. He's knocking on your heart. Has nothing to do with that. Has everything to do with Jesus outside his own church, which is a sad picture saying, Can I come in, please? It's my church. He's, in, he's saying, I'm here. 
The writer to the Hebrews, we've looked at it so many times, says, let us with what confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. It's an invitation with all your sin and all your baggage and all your failures. And you're not just tolerated. You are welcomed into the throne of grace. This is something Old Testament saints, y'all, would have boggled their minds. Aaron, the very first high priest, got to go into the Holy of Holies. How many times a year? One time a year. There's this holy place inside the temple where tabernacle where the presence of God was in the Ark of the Covenant. And he could go in one time a year and very carefully he had to tread. Because if not, he was a dead man. And ever since then, the temple was separated. There's a curtain, a veil that kept people from even seeing in the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest, once per year. And at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, what happens? The curtain is torn from top to bottom, showing that God is the one who has torn it. And it is open, and the Holy of Holies is open. And now we don't just tread fearfully and lightfully. Is God going to kill me? He says, you can come with confidence into the presence of Almighty God. And He is inviting you based on the blood of Jesus Christ. And we blow it off. The most important thing is that you know Christ. If something is the most important thing in your life, what's the most important bill you pay? Your mortgage. You pay it first, probably. It has a priority. If this is your greatest need, is it represented in your life? That's the question we have to ask as a church. Is knowing Christ the highest priority? Are you too busy? Do you just feel like, well, I'm a Christian. I don't really need to know Christ more. Are you too disinterested? There's only one application from this verse. Draw near draw near to the one who is our life and please 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 do not think that i am saying go do a quiet time because some of you already been like yeah i did my quiet time this week Woo! this is for my uncle this is my sister this is my spouse yes the spiritual disciplines are part of drawing near to God, the study and the meditation and the memorization and the reading of God's word. That is one small facet. It's like saying your dinner is the entire day. Really? Like that 30 minutes is the entire day? That's a representation of your day? No, that's just one facet. It's an important facet, but that is not a direct application of this passage. It cannot be because they don't have Bibles. They can't do quiet times. They have one book of the Bible, the one that they're reading, Ephesus. And so the application is beyond just do the spiritual disciplines. It is cultivating in your life a regular communion with God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it can begin, let me just give you some practical things. It can begin when you wake up and before you grumble and moan and scratch your head by just spending 30 seconds thanking God for the fact that you woke up. The fact that you have a house to sleep in. The fact that there's breakfast downstairs. The fact that there's kids sleeping that you have to wake up for school. Just being thankful. Do you know how different that can make your day instead of grumbling and complaining when you wake up? That you can just being thankful and how it sets the tone? How, how huge is that? Spend some time thinking of the cross. Just thinking of the marvelous cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Is what Wesley wrote. Go, you want a great little read? The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. Great little read for some of y'all. You can read it in a day. It's so easy. It's a little book. The Cross-Centered Life. Be a great book to go get. Right? Just think about, spend some time during the week, a couple times during the week, thinking about the cross. Think, spend some time thinking on God. His attributes. 
Theologians have broken into different categories. The incommunicable attributes is one way we say those things which God is that's not like us. There's things that God is like us and that he's love and we can have love and, and those things. But there are attributes of God that he does not share with us. His eternality. Have you just sat down and been and marveled at the eternality of God? That he always existed? The self-sufficiency of God? Right? If there is no God, there is no you. If there is no you, there's still God. Okay? That, that should kind of boggle the mind. Thinking about who God is. Utilize wasted time. Do you know how much time we waste? Some of y'all sit in the car and you complain and you listen to, to uh, too much political radio. Let's be honest. You get mad. You're just mad about everything because everything is going to, you know, down, down, down. And the government's evil and everyone's evil and we're going down. And you just listen to... Turn that off. Put in maybe a, a, a Bible on CD or listen to a sermon or, or sing. Spend some time in worship. Get you a Mandiza and jam. Do something else besides listening to political radio all day long. Right? Sing in your life. I just have pictures of my grandma cooking these elaborate meals when I go visit her. And she was always singing. Just singing hymns. Just a life of worship. Cultivate. Look for these little... If the heavens declare the glory of God, if the psalmist is true, and he is, then God has declared his glory everywhere. And there's just... It's as if God has posted notes of his grace all over the world. Be purposeful. I, this, this week, I dropped my oldest son. He goes to Veritas Academy downtown. Drop him off. And I have an eight-minute commute to the Starbucks, my morning office on Victory Drive. And so I said, I'm going to look just in that little eight minutes down Truman at all these evidences of God's grace. See what I can see. I get on Truman. First thing I notice is these trees that are dead, but I know they're not dead. Because in three or four weeks, guess what? There's going to be buds and there's going to be flowers. And I'm reminded that, you know what? Everything must die before it comes to life. And I see these little bird's nests in all these trees. I mean, you just see just hundreds of these little bird's nests because there's no leaves. You can see them all. And immediately my mind goes to the passage where Jesus says, look at the birds of the field. Does not your father know that every single one of them, when they fall, he knows he takes care of them. How much greater are you than these? That God meets your needs. He's got a little nest for a little bird. And we drive, I drive in a little bit further. I see a graveyard and I just am reminded, guess what? I'm going to be in one of those one day, but I'm not going to be in there long because the resurrection is true. And just, just, just post-it notes of God's grace everywhere. If you just look, even at your spouse, I have a husband, I have a wife, I have a house, I have a job, I have a car, I have a church. I can openly open my Bible. They're all over if we'll just open our eyes. It's just that constant communication with God. Just knowing him, casting your cares every morning. Wake up, do you cast your cares upon him? Because at three o'clock in the afternoon, you know that struggle is going to hit. That computer is going to crash, especially if it's a PC. And something's going to happen. And if you've already cast your cares on him, you know that he's going to care for you. Are you asking God, what, all these things are happening. How are you trying to, what are you trying to teach me? This week I come in, I'm trying to put the sermon online. I realize, you know what? Something happened with the computer last week. Again. And the sermon didn't get recorded. And I'm mad. I'm like, oh. But then I have to ask God, what are you trying to teach me? These little frustrations through the day. It's that constant communication with your God constantly. That's why Paul says pray without ceasing, not because you're supposed to have a 24-hour prayer room at the church that someone's always praying, because you're constantly talking. You're constantly in communion. You're constantly, so when there's conflict with your spouse, you're ready to go and say, Lord, help me to picture the gospel and forgive here. When you've got conflict with that guy at work, whatever it is, you're constantly in communion with your God. That's what we want. 
Times of confession, times of private worship. Jesus has given you an open invitation. Go take a walk on your lunch. Talk to God out loud. Have you ever done that? You think people think you're crazy? Put one of those things in your ear. They'll think you're talking to someone on the phone. They won't even know. Right? Spend time with your God. He says, I'm here. I'm standing at the door and knocking, y'all. And I want a little bit more than 17 minutes of a quiet time in the morning. I want a little bit more than 11.15 to 11.45. Right? That's what he's asking. That is your greatest need, church. It's not to lose weight. It's not a new car. It's not four bedrooms instead of three. Your greatest need is to know Christ more today than you did yesterday. And the only application is draw near. And let me say this. If you think that you're going to go out and have a great ministry and a great spiritual life and a lot of influence, your public ministry, whatever that may be, being a mom, being a dad, being a deacon, being a Sunday school teacher, being a construction worker, it will be fueled by your private worship. And if there is no private worship, there will be no public effect. You can fake it, but there will be no long-lasting impact. Your private ministry fuels your public ministry every time. Every time. So it's essential that you're drawing near and knowing Christ. That is the heart of Paul, that you would know and deeply comprehend Christ. And what he does for the rest of this passage then is this. He says, and if you do that, here's going to be the results. Here's what you're going to know. He gives three real quick things. Hey, when you know Christ, here's the things you're going to know. You've had the highs of your heart enlightened. And the first thing you're going to know is you're going to know the, what is the hope to which he has called you. You're going to know the hope of your calling. And when he's talking about your calling, he's talking about that effectual, gracious, merciful, sovereign God who called you to himself. When he opened your eyes to the gospel, that's what he's saying. You're, when you know Christ more, you're going to have understand your calling more. And when you understand who you are in Christ, it is going to impact your life. It is going to give you hope. And let's be honest, there's not a lot of hope if you look around. Well, this, you don't hear about a lot of hope. Some of us are like, I don't know where my husband's getting transferred. He's in Afghanistan. Some of your husband's checked out. Some of you don't know what's going on. I don't know where I'm going to college. I don't know what's going on with my kids. You just have no clue what's next. A couple months ago, the, the staff pastors were invited to play in the, the Young Life Golf Tournament. Right? And so on, and on staff, we have one guy who plays golf, one guy who thinks he's a golfer, and two guys who know we're not. All right, and now you can figure out who those guys are later. But so we're out there and we're hacking away. And the honest truth is this. Unless it's Kane hitting the ball because he's the golfer. We're, you go back and it's like you better watch out because you have no clue where that ball is going. And if you were, behind, if you were in front of that 180 degree line, you were in harm's way. It could be, you could be straight across from you dead man. I mean, next thing you know, you're in glory. All right. Because we had no clue where the ball was going. And sometimes we'd be down, I'd be over here, because I, I admit that I'm not a golfer. I won't tell you who thinks he's a golfer. But, but, so you got Thompson, who's like six foot 12, and he's over there, and he's 180 yards, and I'm way off to the left. And we're sitting here, and we still got to hide behind our bags, because you have no clue if that ball's going straight, you're going off to the right, it could be, it could be in South Carolina. But that's how life is sometimes, isn't it? You go back with the stick and you have no clue where this thing is going. You have, you have no clue. 
You could be in the weeds. You could be on the green. But when you see this, what is the hope of your calling? You know whether or not God has you in the sand right now or he's got you in the marsh. You know eventually what is going to happen because you have hope. And look, as your pastor, I I lose hope sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Things aren't always happy, happy, joy, joy for me. I told you a couple weeks ago, we were meeting with some churches that have great facilities. They have 30 people meeting in a facility that holds 850. Thinking, maybe God, this is what you're going to do. Come away from that meeting, they don't want to do anything. Go to another church, they hold 600. They got about 40 people. Maybe this is something we're going to do. They don't want to do anything. And I'm walking away, God, we have no seats, we have no parking. What is going on? And, and, and sometimes, look, the enemy has been attacking lately like he has not been in months. I can tell you, he is up the game. We are on the radar. Because people's lives are being changed with the gospel. And he is not going to let that go without being discouraging and destruction. And so there is times when I have little hope. But when I come to a passage like this, this brings me back to what is the hope of my calling? I am reminded whether my ball is in the water, whether it's in the sand, whether it's in the marsh, I know where it goes. Because he has called me to something and it gives me hope. And he knows, he doesn't just call me y'all. He doesn't call me you guys. He calls me by name, just like he did Israel in the Old Testament. He told Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That is what he has called if you were one of his. Your name is written by him in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are his. And you have hope. It doesn't matter how bad it gets because it's going to get bad. Let me just be real frank. Some of you are going to get cancer. You are. Some of your spouses are going to be checked out. Some of your kids, maybe they they have a time of rebellion. Some of you might lose your job. Total the car. Look, we have to be real honest. Christians, especially in America, are trying too hard to make Christianity pay off today. And it don't always pay off today. This is the narrow road. This is where you take up your cross. Christianity does not always pay off today, despite what they say on TBN. It pays off where? In eternity. That is where the hope of your calling is. So let's not try to make it pay off today. Let's look to the future because we know where the ball goes. Because that's the only way, honestly, when tragedy happens, that is the only way you will be able to see like Job, that the Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the only way you'll be able to like, be like Horatio Spafford, who was able to say, it is well with my soul, despite the fact that my four kids are at the bottom of the ocean and my business is gone. How else can you say that? Unless you have hope. Of something beyond. It is the hope of your calling. Right? He says when you know Christ. No matter how bad it gets. You know the hope of what is to come. That's not all you know. He says you also know what are the riches. Of this glorious inheritance. In the saints. You'll know also when you know Christ. How rich you really are. You say I drive a 1976 Chevette. I ain't rich. That's a hot car y'all. Let me tell you what. I remember the Chevette's. But when you know Christ and the more you know Christ, the more you will realize how rich you are in Christ. And the more things here, like the the old songwriter said, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Because you will see what matters and what doesn't. Because no one on their deathbed, and Pastor Jay's grandpa passed away this week, 93 years old. And he wasn't asking on his deathbed for his Rolex or his car keys, or he wasn't asking what the market was doing. Because those things do not matter at that point. 
you'll see the closer you get to Christ that the three-bedroom or the four-bedroom, it does not matter. And the 2012 versus the 2014, it does not matter. And whether I went to Harvard, Yale, or Armstrong, or Savannah Tech, ultimately does not matter. And if your kid wins the Little League Championship, the trophy, I promise you, in 20 years will be in the garbage because mine are, and I won it. Because it ultimately doesn't matter. The closer you get to Christ, the more you know the riches that you have in him. And it frees you from being tied so much to this world and stuff. I mean, what do you think? Think about heaven. We don't know a ton about it, but we do know one thing. You know what we do know? The streets are made of what? Of gold. Now, let's just think about that. Is anyone walking out of this church on the way out and they're walking? Man, look at this asphalt. This is some good asphalt. I'm going to take this home and collect it. It's going to be worth something someday. No one is doing that. Why? Because it's common. It's asphalt. It's all over the place. It's not worth anything. The most worthless thing in heaven, the streets, are made of gold. All right? That's the most worthless thing. The streets are made of gold. And no one's going to be walking around heaven. Man, look at this gold. Isn't this great? Why? Because it's just common in heaven. So the most valuable thing here is the most worthless thing in heaven. How rich are you in Christ? You cannot fathom. And when you know Christ more, you'll know that more. And you won't be so tied to things here. You'll know the hope of your calling. You know you're rich. And thirdly, you'll know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. You will know how great God's power is towards you. You will know how magnificent God is. How great is God's power? I mean, can you think, try to think about God's power. Take 15 seconds. Try to think about how great God's power is. How you doing? You doing okay? Are you like me? Well, where do I start? I mean, I, where do I go? God's power. Where do I begin? Yet that is the point. That's why he says, what is the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness? You can't begin to think about it. It's so fat, unfathomable for you. You can't do it. And he uses these four Greek words, this word dunamis, which we get our English word dynamite from, that says it's translated power and his energia, his working and this word, Greek word kratos, which means greatness or mightiness. And this word exclus, which means power or might. He, he, he just uses all these terms so that you will see how great is God's power. How mighty is God. And so when the enemy attacks, and look, he's been attacking me. He's been attacking everything about this church he's been attacking. He's been discouraging. He's been trying to get these uh, gossiping out in the community. You know, people's marriages are under. We got all these struggles. And when I think about the struggles, I can get down until I come to a passage like this and think, if God is for us, like we sang earlier, who can be against us? This is the power of God that is towards us who believe. It is the mighty power of God. It's the power where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are sitting on the diving board, heading into the fire. And they say, hey, king, you can't make us bow to you. God can save us or he doesn't save us. It doesn't matter. We're not going to do it. How you like them apples? And they do a duck dive into the fire. And they come out and they don't even smell like smoke. Why? Because of the greatness of God's power towards those who believe. Right? And so you say, well, what kind of power are we talking about here? I mean, how great is this power that's towards us? He tells us the power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power that conquered the grave the power that gives eternal life that's the kind of power is that enough power for you 
Not enough power? How about enough power that, that seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? And why, you know, you notice always it says Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. You know why that is? Because that's the position of honor and glory. Jesus, when he was on earth, was ridiculed and beaten and mocked and lied about and gossiped about and slandered. But God says, you know what? I'm going to conquer all those lies and I'm going to see him in a position of honor. How great is he? It's the po- How great is his power? The power to raise from the dead. The power to exalt what man despises. Enough power? The power, verse 21, far above rule and authority and power and dominion. These are, these are terms that refer to the demonic realm of Satan and his, and his angels who opposed God from the very beginning. And, and notice, it's not just he beats them by one run in the bottom of the 11th. Far above them. Far above the power of Satan. Far above all those who oppose him. Far above every name that is named. Every powerful person. King Henry the whatever. President whoever. Vice President. Chief of the Senate. King whoever. Whatever. Far above every person who opposes him. Is that enough power for you? And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all, over all things to the church. The power to rule and reign forever and ever. Enough power for you? And then, but just notice this how he closes this great, this great prayer. He says what? He, he wants to remind you this great power that's greater than demons. It's greater than Satan. It's greater than the grave. It's greater than everything. The rejection of Christ. It's yours. And why is it yours? Because you are connected to Jesus. He is the head over all things and the church. And you are his body. And the body is connected to where? The head. So this great power that, that's in Christ, you are connected to, which is why earlier he said that it's towards you who believe. All this power, Paul, Peter says this, that you have everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ. And what Paul is praying, what my prayer has been all this week and it will be continually as we go through this book, is that you would know the resources that you have being in Christ. That you would know the hope of his calling. That you would know how rich you are in Christ. And that you would know the power that God has towards you. The power to conquer your addiction that you've been struggling with for three years. The power to forgive your parents because they were lousy. The power to forgive your ex-spouse. The power to handle losing your job better than the guy in the cubicle next to you who doesn't have Christ. The power to believe in him even though you don't know where the money's coming from from your water bill. That you have that kind of power. You can face trials differently. You can face sin differently. That you can have victory over sin in your life. You can have victory, people. And this is not because you are anything. It's because Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why you can have victory. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Him. And it comes when? When you deeply know Christ more and more. That's when it comes. That's what it comes back to. And so the only application this morning for us is what? Draw near. Draw near. Is it a priority for you to draw near? You say, what does that look like? I have no clue what it looks like for you. But I know that it's more than a 12-minute quiet time three times a week and an hour and 15-minute service on Sunday mornings. I know it's more than that. And some of us need to really examine our lives and to see, is knowing Christ a priority or something I like to talk about when I go to church? What are you waiting for? The Son of Glory 
full of grace and truth, is awaiting and he is knocking. He just says, draw near. Come have breakfast with me. And lunch and brunch and dinner and dinner and everything else. Will you draw near this week? And if you're not a Christian this morning, which I don't know your heart, but God does. And God brought you here on purpose because he loves you. Your greatest need is not to know Christ more. It's to know Christ, period. You need to be forgiven of your sins. Your sins have made a separation between you of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's only one way to know him, and that is to believe in him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can't come to church. You can't walk an aisle. You can't pray a prayer. You can't give a tithe. You can't get baptized. That does not make you know Christ. You know Christ through faith. It is by grace you have been saved. It is through faith. It is a gift of God. He offers you the gift of knowing him, the gift of eternal life. And it's only through faith because if it was something you could do, then you could boast about it. You could say, look at me. I went to church. I am a good guy. I'm a good gal. No, it is through faith and faith alone, recognizing you are a sinner, that you are separated by God from God, and that he had to come to you, that he had to rescue you, that he had to die for you, that he had to raise again for you, that he has done it all. And you have to empty yourself and come to the end of your rope and say, I have nothing. Jesus has done it all. And when you believe, then you have eternal life. And you know Christ and you will forever know him. And you can grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ from that day on. And it's my prayer if God has brought you here this morning and you don't know Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. And if you hear his voice speaking to you and his spirit is moving in your heart, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray and let's worship. Please stand with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for opening my eyes and so many here to the glory of your gospel. I ask that you would be lifted high in the church, in this church, and in all the churches in this town that proclaim Christ. And in this world, that the nations would be known by you and that you would be glorified in them. Lord, it's our desire for me as, as one of the shepherds of this church to just see your people know you more. We are weak and broken. And if we don't see that, Lord, show us. And even those of us who have been saved 30, 40, maybe 50 years, we're still weak and broken and so in need of your grace daily. Lord, let us draw near to you and know you more as a church so that when those trials do come, that we will say, it is well. It is well. Whether it's peace like a river or whether it's sorrow like sea billows, it is well. Because we have hope in our calling in Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.